Welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast, where business leaders tell their stories and share their insights. All our guests have a personal connection with Nottingham Business School, so listen, learn, enjoy and share. Welcome to the NBS Business Leaders Podcast with me, Mike Sassy. Now, next spring, Nottingham Castle is due to reopen after a £30 million renovation that will turn it into one of the region's premier tourist attractions. It's the biggest project of its kind in the country, and the person detailed with making sure it happens is the Chief Executive of the Nottingham Castle Trust, Sarah Blair Manning. Sarah previously spent six years managing National Trust properties in Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire, where she almost tripled visitor numbers. Now her task is to create a world-class visitor destination in the centre of Nottingham. So I read last week that your role was to build Nottingham an international reputation and lead its post-Covid regeneration. Is that as straightforward as it sounds? It's quite a big job, isn't it? And th- th- thanks for reminding me of that. I think that's split into two phases, really. So I think, first of all, we are tasked, and I am leading a team, to make sure that the uh, Nottingham Castle reopens after its amazing capital investment project, £30 million. Pounds. Um, and all of that, I'm pleased to say, even with the COVID complications, is, is on time. Once we're open, it's obviously my role and my team's role to make sure that the visitor experience is exemplary and everybody knows about the castle and wants to come and visit it. However, we obviously find ourselves in a COVID landscape. It's been challenging. It's not insurmountable. Um, and people will understand now that um, many visitor attractions and heritage sites are actually operating bookable systems. It's not what we had anticipated that we were going to open with. We're working on effectively people pre-booking, having a timed visit and having effectively a set experience. And there are three set experiences that we can share with people so there is some flexibility and once Covid is under control um, we would anticipate that we would go back to a normal operational running scenario and that would be something where people can just pitch up on the day and come and do certain things and opt out of certain things and lounge around and stay for much longer or go away and come back you know so um, it is very different and of course supporting all of that we've had to rejig our finances as well that means that we have to be very prudent in terms of our financial projections so you know our, our anticipation in a covid free world will be that Visitors will be either wanting to come to Nottingham anyway, um, or they will have heard about the fantastic offer that Nottingham Castle has, and also the other things that happen in the city. You know, we, Nottingham Contemporary, international reputation in terms of what that does in terms of its programming and its um, and its offer. So it's not just about the castle; it's about building a mass, really. Um, of things in the city that people want to come and visit. I don't want to sidetrack you, but do you you think the rest of the city is ready for that? I don't think we're in exactly the right position. No, I don't. I think think that um, pre-Covid, there was a very clear timeline of things that were happening. So the castle was launching 
Broadmarsh was launching, the new library was launching. So there was a there was a momentum to the capital projects in the city that were obviously going to start a journey for Nottingham, a journey that I think Nottingham needs to get to a place where the visitor experience for the whole city, not just the castle, is of a higher standard than it is now, that we actually become a destination point for people to come to, both in terms of culture but also heritage. It's interesting what you say there, because somebody said to me, Sarah really knows how to make things work, and she's a very good business planner, and that is rare in cultural institutions. I mean, I wanted to ask, does that suggest you could go and make a lot more money elsewhere and perhaps <laughs> do something different now? Uh, well, I, I don't know. I've never, I've never looked, to be quite honest. I think, um, I think part of my leadership uh, journey has been understanding what's important to me, what makes me tick and, uh, and what I want to do with my life more widely but also my professional life. And I want to make a difference um, to people's lives and people's experiences and um, give people opportunity. It sounds really, um, sounds really sort of grand, doesn't it? And, um, and, and a lot of this, of course, is not necessarily achievable all the time. Um, but to give people opportunities that they may not have had before coming to one of the properties that I'm fortunate enough to lead and they experience something that actually makes them think about their life in a different way. Because you were the first person in your family to go to university, what was the background to that? So I come from a travelling showman's family, so um, Goose Fair, everybody will know Goose Fair. Um, all of the things that are at Goose Fair, that's what my family does. And from the age of nine, I sat in a cash box in an arcade. From the age of 11, I called bingo every night from 7 o'clock until 1 o'clock in the morning. And from the age of 18, um, even when I was a student, I used to come back and I used to run um, my dad's waltzer or the, um, you know, the different rides that we had um, on my uncle's um, fairground. So, um, <laughs> so I just, I just, I, it sounds That's weird, unusual, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. A background for a, a chief executive of Britain's top... Uh, well, I don't know whether it is because I've been involved with visitor experience since I was born. And there's a picture of me in my mum's arms at the bottom of a helter-skelter um, and I must be months old. I have been absolutely surrounded by people uh, wanting to have a good time and being part of, um, you know, different... Uh, functions of trying to allow people to have a good time. So I think fundamentally I am in a really good position to understand what people want and how to give it to them and that that is a broad breadth of people now that I am moved, you know, I've moved from fairgrounds into art galleries, theatres, cinemas, now heritage. That's fascinating. So, you, But you went from, from how, as you've explained, to um, effectively, uh, over a sh relatively short period, or a short period, into um, in stately homes and into the National Trust. <laughs> National Trust, what did you learn there? I learned a lot of things at the National Trust. So, so yes, the National Trust was, a, was an odd place for me to turn up at. And I think that um, a lot of people were surprised when I ended up at the National Trust, because of course... They don't do waltzes? Well, travelling showmen don't go to the National <laughs> Trust properties, of course they don't. No, they're too, well, one, they're too busy working all the time, so they really don't. Um, but yes, I was, I was sort of the, the, strange, the strange general manager there, because I had a different, different background. I didn't, I didn't read history. I um, hadn't been involved with um, heritage, um, and suddenly I found myself with a portfolio of historic properties and also farms and 
chapels and all sorts of different things, which was fabulous. But coming at it from quite a contemporary viewpoint rather than a more traditional National Trust viewpoint. Now, at the time, the National Trust were very keen to see new people coming into the organisation to freshen it up, really, which is obviously why I was employed. What I learnt at the National Trust um, was something about organisational development, really, I think, in the main. So it's obviously the largest conservation trust in Europe. It's a massive organisation. It is full of bureaucracy. It takes ages to make any major decisions. That taught me great patience. (laughs) Um, And also how to um, most effectively work with people to get the results that we needed within my portfolio. And when I needed to step forward and make those decisions and when I needed to step back and just allow the regional management or the central management to make those decisions. Another thing which may make you different or perhaps unusual is that you have another life, don't you? You're a, you're a singer, you're a conductor, you're a, your music's very important to you. I think that's another thing I've learned is I've learned to bring myself to work. And I didn't learn that really until probably seven or eight years ago. I did music and drama at NTU on the Creative Arts course, which no longer exists. I then went and did a postgraduate in orchestral and chamber music conducting. Um, So I know how to start things, and I know when everybody should stop at the same time, which is helpful for projects. (laughs) And I know how to gather people and effectively herd cats so that we can all get to the same point at the same time and make sure that we're all aiming in the right direction. So I think that there were skills that I learned that have been useful in my my leadership career and my management career. But yes, I I, I still sing with a swing band. Um, So I'm very fortunate, and I have been fortunate in my um, semi-professional career to work with a lot of ex-army um, uh, and RAF musicians who are so well-trained and so proficient at what they do. But now you've committed yourself to Nottingham. I have. It, and, and, and people talk about that. You came here day one, moved here, and that's relatively unusual for someone in such a high-powered position uh, in a city. Yeah, I suppose it is. Um, I mean, I actually moved a month before I started the role, I think it takes a long time to become part of the community and I don't realistically think I will ever become part of the community. I was born in Lincolnshire, I know how difficult it is for the incomers coming into Lincolnshire to become Lincolnshire Um, and I suspect it's similar in the city. For me it's important to understand what the city is doing and to feel what the city feels like at different parts of the year and different parts of the day and to talk to people in shops about, you know, nobody really knows who I am. Um, I can go into the Tesco and I can ask people about, you know, what do you think of the Castle Project or what do you think of this? Do you do that? I do, yeah, I ask people all the time. What do they say? Um, Well, they they say, um, well, they sort of reserve their position really until it's open. Half the population of the city seem to be really quite excited about it and I think that will start to ramp up once we actually get our marketing communications channels open. And the other half of the city, I think, are a little bit more careful, maybe slightly expecting it to be not that much different than they had experienced before. Because there is a thing that Nottingham Castle, does it look like a castle? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Will it look like a castle after after you've you've been? No, it's going to look as, externally, it's going to look the same. Of course, we're not going to take down the Ducal Palace and rebuild um, uh, rebuild a medieval castle. We are going to allow people 
to more easily understand the transition from the wooden fort in, 10, uh, in 1068 up to the medieval um, castle, up to the Ducal Palace. And that will be done visually both on the website we're anticipating, but also on some screens when people come into the new visitor centre. And that's interesting because among your colleagues, you're, you're, you're famous for having a, a big focus on giving paying customers what they want rather than what staff think they want. Um, are all good leaders so commercially minded? I don't know whether it's commercially minded. I think it, tra it translates into good commercial practice, of course, because if people are happier, they stay longer, they spend more, they come back. You want people to be engaged with what you are trying to give them. You need to understand that probably 40% of your visitors are going to come and they just want to have a nice time with their family. There are other groups that will come that will want to learn about Robin Hood. There are other groups that will want to learn about the rebellious nature of the castle and, and Nottingham itself. And there are other groups that want to come and learn about the creativity and the amazing lace and alabaster collections that we have. You have to be really clear about what you're selling and you have to be really clear about your audiences and what your audiences want and to be speaking in the correct manner to the different types of audiences. You've worked in the leisure sector for more than a quarter of a century. How You're dare you? I'm sorry, I don't How apologize. dare you? I'm sorry, sorry. I won't have it said that I, I'm that old. Yes, I have, in fact, a bit longer. <laughs> um, how has the leisure sector changed over that time? That's a good question. So I think leisure culture and heritage, I think it's changed greatly in terms of technology. I'm not sure it's changed that much in any other respect. It's always the issue of trying to take quite specialist visitor experiences. You know, coming to, coming to a castle and an art gallery is challenging in terms of the audiences that you have that want to do that. I may not think that that is a difficult thing, but I know that there are many communities in Nottingham that wouldn't dream of coming to the castle because they just do not think it's for them. And that's part of what our community work is trying to um, change, really. So, you've had a very successful career. Thank so you. Far. I have, yes, I have. Yeah, let's hope it doesn't go awry next. Funnily enough, that's just about what I'm going to ask you. What, 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 would your, what would your biggest biggest mistake be? What would you like to have known then that you know now? <laughs> so, everybody makes mistakes. I've made countless mistakes. I've made small mistakes, medium mistakes, and big mistakes. Um, and I, will, I know that I will continue to, to make mistakes. And the great thing about making mistakes, as long as they're not completely disastrous, is that you can learn from them, so long as you are open to learning from them. So making mistakes isn't necessarily a bad thing, so long as you understand what, what went wrong, how it went wrong, and what you can do to fix so it. So come on, what went wrong? So I've had, I've had challenges with um, trustee boards, not, not the trustee board that I'm working with now, where I worked with one particular trustee board and the chairman was a politician and he was very, very wayward and he would just go and buy stuff. And, um, kind of stuff. and well, he'd buy buildings. When buildings, you could, yeah, buildings, right. yeah. So he bought a building which I had strongly and the rest of the trustee board had strongly and the rest of the staff team had strongly recommended him not to do because our business plan was not in the stage where it could support I take it he wasn't using his own money he was not using his own money no I should have been able to manage that person better and how, and how, and how did that end up that ended up with the trustee board resigning the majority of the trustee board resigning the majority of the staff team leaving 
including myself, because I could not control him and it was a road to disaster. And the, um, the facility, the, the visitor offer, um, went into volunteer. Uh, it wasn't run by professional staff anymore, it was run by volunteers. Okay, right. Okay, well, back with yourself. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm told by numerous people that you're, you're very much one for seizing opportunities. I mean, in this interview, you've talked about managing big stately homes and, and, and much smaller arts companies. And that's, a, that's an incredible breadth of experience. And I would imagine that many aspiring leaders will be li listening to this and thinking, um, how do you get that kind of experience? How do you get those opportunities? Well, you say yes to everything. Um, and I have always put myself in a position where it's a little bit of a stretch as well. So I, d I personally don't like feeling comfortable, overly comfortable in a role. I like to know that there are things that are going to test me and going to make me work in a different way or in a harder way or, you know, for me, sometimes it's just longer hours. To understand that going for a new role or your subsequent role or if you're going sideways or however you're doing it, that actually you're going to be learning new skills. Allowing yourself to find some opportunities and, and I, I understand that that is incredibly hard for lots of people and it was incredibly hard for me when I was younger as well because I didn't come from the traditional background of you know people running these sorts of things. So is there something that you did that really turned a corner for you, something that really made a difference? I think, I think partly it was luck, I think that the heritage sector were looking to do things differently and I think the heritage sector 15 years ago probably thought that they needed to connect more readily with different communities and to do that they needed to move away from maybe what their staff teams looked like. So I think that there was a timing thing and I think that the skills that I had been fortunate to learn within art centres, cinema complexes were easily transferable to the heritage world really. I talked myself into the jobs. I made sure that I had researched everything. I made sure that I was believable in terms of being able to deliver things. So I think it's about just making sure that you are, well in part, trying to present yourself as a credible, authentic person. So I didn't go in there saying I know everything. I never do that because I don't know everything. Building a fantastic team is the key to a leader's success. I'm good at planning but I take a long time to think about it and I've obviously now got quite a lot of experience and but I'm but I'm looking at that from a visitor's point of view as well so I when I go round potential places where I think I might like to work I always go and have a look at somewhere and see what's going on incognito you know I will go in and I will talk to the staff shop in the shop and I'll walk the grounds and I'll eat in the cafe and I'll just hang around listening to what people are saying. And then I will go away and formulate what I think about that. And most of the time, the properties that I've had the privilege to look after haven't been visitor-focused in the way that I think they should be visitor-focused. And I think that it's been that and my success at being able to um, solidify business plans and make them work and deliver them. So increasing visitor numbers, ensuring that the money is there, has been the things that people have liked that then they've offered me the job. But I think it's about taking who you are 
and your strengths. You know, when I first started, my, my, I haven't done an accounting course. I was rubbish at maths at school. I really was rubbish. If it hadn't been for Mr. Stewart, I would never have got Mr. Stewart, let's give him a name check. What was the school? <laughs> it was Alford Grammar School. Alford Grammar, yeah, okay. so I did go to grammar school. Um, but I probably wasn't your average grammar school person either. So um, I wasn't the best academic person. I wasn't a sporty person. I was an arty person. And I sort of found my bit in the middle, you know, I was good at some of the subjects and, and you know, as I say, not, not particularly, I mean, I can, add, I can add up, obviously I can add up now as well, um, but, um, I, I, you know, I found it difficult. And finally, what do you think Nottingham could do to help itself in the coming years? <laughs> uh, I think, so I, I was in Nottingham in the 80s, uh, a student in the 80s, and Nottingham in the 80s was a fantastic place to shop. It was a fantastic place to socialise because the music scene was extraordinary. The club scene was wide-ranging and extraordinary. It was brave. You could wear whatever you wanted. You could demonstrate what you were feeling. You could show what you were doing. And I know the country was a bit more like that at that time as well in the 80s with, you know, sort of new wave and all the rest of it, new romantics. But Nottingham felt raw. It felt alive. It felt vibrant, it felt challenging, it felt rebellious in the way that it talks about itself being a rebellious city. And it felt edgy, that's what I say to people, it felt really edgy and it was sort of really exciting as a young person, but I'm sure the communities felt it as well. I think it's lost that edge. I think it's become chippy, which is a different thing to edgy, but I think it has somehow become accepting of okay, and okay is not enough. I don't think okay is enough. I'm not going to deliver okay. Um, my team aren't interested in delivering okay. I think it should have greater ambition for itself. I think it should be striving harder for itself. And I think that includes all of the communities, the council, all of the businesses. You know, we've got some fantastic businesses, individuals, communities. They're doing extraordinary work. But they are fractured, I would say. And we need to create that, uh, that mass of people doing extraordinary work and make Nottingham right, you know, raise itself up, really. That's what I think it needs to do. I think it needs to have a clear strategic direction. Of course, I'm not Nottingham or Nottinghamshire born and bred. And I understand that people have some concerns about people who aren't Nottinghamshire or Nottingham born and bred coming into the city and bringing skills in and shouldn't they be for Nottingham people and Nottingham jobs for Nottingham people. Yeah, and, I, and I fundamentally support an element of that and people will see when they come to the castle that there is a good proportion of people working at the castle um, that are local. That's one of our commitments to the city. However, I don't think that there is anything wrong if you haven't got a skilled person doing a specific thing that you get those from somewhere else and those sorts of people should be brought in to share their skills and their experience and their advice to be able to help the city to develop people with that sort of skill, with that sort of experience. I think people should be careful and mindful about, frankly, slagging people off who weren't originally part of the city that are probably coming in to do things that will leave a legacy for the city that the rest of the city residents or the, 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 um, the county's residents can actually benefit from. 
Um, but I think it just needs, and it needs to be bold, and it needs to let go as well. You know, there are there are organisations in the city, and I have these conversations directly with the organisations in the city, and nobody in the city will be surprised when I say this. There are organisations that just need to let go and stop trying to control everything, because that is not good. And there need to be spaces created in the city that where actually local communities can take them and they can develop them in different ways that doesn't look drab, that doesn't look boring, that doesn't look formulated by somebody who was in their 60s. It's about ensuring that there is representation of the youth and all age groups in the city. When people get to a certain seniority, they are sometimes a certain age, and, and I include myself in that, and they sometimes have a certain approach, and I include myself in that. So I am talking to my younger team members about, you know, I don't know what's cool now. You know, I know what's all right for me, but I don't know what's cool. Why should I be making that decision? I can't make that decision. Hand that decision to somebody who knows what that, what that is looking like. And make sure that the city feels like that. Don't try and recreate the 1960s, 1970s, you know, of our youth. That's not our job. Our job is to hand things over when it's appropriate and allow people to have the conversation so that we can have a full understanding of what everybody in the city, all of the communities, all of the different organisations, all of the businesses, the council, how we work together collectively to actually make sure that everybody is represented, everybody is heard, and that there are different offers for different people. Because unless we have different offers for different people, Nottingham is not going to become a destination city. Sarah Blair Manning, that has been absolutely fantastic. Thanks very, very much and good luck. Thank you, it's a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, why not check out some of the others that are available, including those with former banking executive Robin Fole and sportswear marketing guru Charlotte Cox. The Nottingham Business School Business Leaders podcast is produced for Nottingham Trent University. Your presenter was Mike Sassy, and it was produced by John Collins.